This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and our theme is the Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of Life. That phrase, Lord and Giver of Life, was included in the Nicene Creed at Constantinople in 381. It's a powerful phrase that captures a number of biblical truths. Here to help us understand why the church has used this language and what it means is Bob Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim, and Pastor. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Always good to be with you. The listener might know about some of the arguments over the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, but the arguments against the divinity of the Holy Spirit are less well-known. Fill us in about the background surrounding the language adopted by the council at Constantinople as they were expanding and revising the Nicene Creed. Well, I think the theological movement in the reflection of the church from the Council of Nicaea in 325 to the Council at Constantinople in 381 shows the maturing reflection and slightly changing situation in the life of the church. At Nicaea, the great issue was, is Jesus truly and eternally divine? Is he of one substance with the Father? This is a key reaction against Arianism that saw Jesus as a creation of God, maybe being like God, but certainly not being God in the fullest sense of that word. And the church was so convulsed by that controversy that relatively little attention was paid to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I think in the back of a lot of people's mind, there was probably a recognition that if the eternal personhood of the second person was established, that it would pretty much follow that the third person was eternally God as well. But the controversy was primarily focused on the second person, not on the third. And I think by the time of Constantinople in 381, there was a sense we need to say something further. So when you recite the Nicene Creed today, you are really reciting the Niceo-Constantinopolitan Creed. Which is hard to say. And for obvious reasons, it's hardly ever said. I seldom get it outright, so I'm very proud of myself for doing it well once. Well done. In the original Nicene Creed, it just said, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so to try to develop and balance the creed by 381, various things were added. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and who with the Father is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. So there is this effort to round out something of the work of the Holy Spirit to have a little more sense of the person of the Holy Spirit. And the astute listener will notice what you didn't say as you were reciting the creed as it emerged from Constantinople in 381. There was a phrase you didn't use, with which most Western Christians would be familiar or should be familiar. What was that phrase that you didn't use? We almost always, in the West, reciting the creed, say that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. And that phrase in Latin, and the Son, is a single word, filioque, and that phrase, and the Son, was added to the creed in the West more by political than ecclesiastical authorities. It was added centuries after the Council of Nicaea and after the Council of Constantinople, and it was added 
it appears historically largely in a context to oppose Arians. So it was added to exalt the Son to underscore his eternal divinity and his relationship with the persons of the Trinity. But we have to recognize that that was not in the form of the creed adopted by the ecumenical council. And that issue then became a huge theological wrangling point between the Eastern and Western churches and continues to be a debate. It was adopted formally at a Spanish council in Toledo, not Ohio, Spain, in the, There's another Toledo? <laughs> yes, in 589. And the Greek church was very unhappy about this. Right. Because they said, and still say, this was a high-handed thing for the West to do. But there was a history behind the Filioque, as you say, and the history behind the controversy. It was being said in Jerusalem, and some of the Greek-speaking brethren were unhappy about this, and so it was disputed. In fact, the Roman bishop said, well, okay, stop saying it, but it gradually made its way into the service and became a fixed part of the service. So it's in virtually all of the Reformed confessions, right? So when we talk about ecumenical relations, sometimes people have said, well, you know, it's not worth being divided from the East over the Filioque. Let's just drop it. And while that theoretically is a possibility, it's a difficulty, right, for those of us who hold and confess the Reformed faith, because it's already in our confession, sort of baked in. Well, I think there are two issues here. There's a theological issue. Is it true that the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as from the Father? And does believing that make any difference? I think it's always useful to say of any theological claim, does it make a difference? What's the impact of believing or not believing that? And Eastern and Western theologians have debated whether it made various claims about the impact of confessing that or not confessing that. I always say that as a humble historian who makes no claims to being a theologian, I am not persuaded that either side can demonstrate that saying or denying the filioque actually makes a big difference theologically. I'm not persuaded about that. So that's the theological issue. I think most of the time in history, the real debate has been about ecclesiastical authority and power. And ultimately, the West basically has followed the Pope saying, I have a right to change this ecumenical creed without calling an ecumenical council to do it. And the East says, no, you don't. And I think, frankly, on simply historical grounds, the Eastern Church's argument is stronger than the Western Church's. I say the filioque when we recite the creed. I don't think there's anything erroneous about it, but I do think the historical argument of the Eastern Church that we shouldn't be adding to ecumenical creeds without calling an ecumenical council is a very strong historical argument. And I agree that historically, I always tell the students that as a matter of church polity and politics, it was problematic. But I'm sympathetic to the reasons why the West did it. I think it gives a good explanation or a better, more complete explanation for the way the scriptures talk about the relationship between the Trinitarian persons. Right. Most theologians in the Eastern Church have been willing to say the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, and I'm not sure fighting over that actually accomplishes much. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Yeah. Now you're down to debating whether it's better to say through or from, that is, the Spirit being sent by the Son, or whether the Son is merely an agent of the sending of the Spirit, which is an important and interesting discussion, but one we'll leave for another episode. And we have to recognize that those words in the Creed, and from the Son, 
are words that could be interpreted in several different directions. They are not an exhaustive, detailed theological statement. Going back to Constantinople, however, when we say the Holy Spirit is Lord and giver of life, what's entailed in that? Well, here's an effort, I think, to elaborate what the Spirit does in the economy of redemption. I think sometimes you can hear preachers from a variety of different ecclesiastical traditions talk a lot about the Father and a lot about the Son, as the Father's clearly Lord and giver of life at creation. The Son, in a variety of ways, is the Lord and giver of life on the cross and in the resurrection. And I think some preaching then acts as if it can get along without any reference to the Spirit at all, or half-hearted references. or uh, It becomes uh, sort of effectively binatarian right. rather than trinitarian. right. And there have been a few people who have actually argued a binatarian theology in the history of the church. But I think the creed is recognizing the scriptural evidence that the Spirit is an important agent in redemption, and his agency is particularly to bring the benefits of Christ in the name of Christ and on behalf of Christ to the church. And that's why in the creeds there's a strong connection between the confession of the Spirit and the confession of the church and the life of the church. And the Spirit is also Lord and giver of life in creation as well. He's present, hovering over the face of the deep. The early church was very aware of that when they said that. Right. The Father works creation through the agency of the Spirit, we could say, and the Son works salvation through the agency of the Spirit. So when we, Reformed and Presbyterian confessional folk, talk about the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, we are really articulating a very ancient Christian way of thinking about salvation and the Christian life. Exactly. Because the scriptures make very clear, and our tradition has sought to fully embrace what the scripture teaches, that the objective work of Christ becomes actually saving for us in our subjective experience through the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering and using the institutions that Christ established for his church. And so the subjective work of the Holy Spirit is very precious to our theology and is absolutely clear in the scriptures. And that's very important to say. So let me ask you to say that again. I couldn't possibly (laughs) say that again. (laughs) Because sometimes... From the point of view of American revivalism, American evangelicalism, whatever terms one wants to describe the broad sweep of American Protestant evangelical theology, piety, and practice in the 18th and 19th centuries, traditional, confessional, reformed theology has sometimes been accused of being a little stiff and of not having enough emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And in truth, it's not really a lack of emphasis. It's a different way of talking about the person and work of the Spirit. Is that fair? Absolutely. If you could say that again, I'd like to hear you say that again. Um, (laughs) I think that's right. There are two errors into which we can fall. We can fall into an over-objectification of Christian truth and institution. And you see that in Rome, where basically Rome says the sacraments accomplish their purpose quite apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you push the Romanist, he'd probably work the Spirit in somehow. But basically, the physical elements of sacraments accomplish their purpose directly and immediately. There's no real need for the Holy Spirit in that theology. On the other hand, you have some evangelicals, as you were alluding to, or Pentecostals, who really put all of their emphasis on the immediate and direct 
work of the Holy Spirit, separating him from the institutions of Christ in terms of the church, in terms of ministry, in terms of preaching, in terms of sacraments. And the genius of Reformed theology, in my judgment, is the way in which we want to say that the Spirit works with and in the institutions that Christ has given. Uh, He may occasionally, according to his sovereign good pleasure, work beyond those institutions, But that's not where we should look for him. We need to look for him to work as Christ has promised in the institutions Christ has given. This is important for the listener to understand that much of what is presented as Bible Christianity in the United States, in North America, in the West, and indeed now across the entire globe, is in fact a product of a certain way of thinking that comes out of the 19th century, that isn't necessarily received by all the church in all times and all places as Bible Christianity. For example, in the very early 19th century, there was an outbreak of what was described as revival at Cane Ridge in Kentucky. Bourbon County, Kentucky. Let's be specific. Okay, so tell us about that, and how does that come to shape what so many people think of as Bible Christianity? Well, in 1801, when uh, the Cane Ridge Revival broke out, Kentucky was a very sparsely populated state, and one of the phenomena of the Western expansion of America was the creation of relatively large farms where people lived in the middle of their farms and therefore were far away from villages and neighbors. And so they developed to try to cope with that very thinly dispersed population, the camp meeting phenomenon where people, when they didn't have to be on their farms working after harvest perhaps or after the spring planting was in, would gather for what came to be known as camp meetings. They would come together and camp. And for sometimes a series of weeks, there would be intense preaching, which at the Cane Ridge Revival, led to intense emotional reactions to the preaching. And so it began to develop that an idea that real Christianity was greeted by intense emotional reaction with all sorts of external manifestations from what we would call today being slain in the spirit. Speaking in tongues and Yeah, and all I, I don't think it. there was actually speaking in tongues at Cane Ridge Revival, but there was kind of verbalization in various ways. But what it signaled was a tendency to want to look for external manifestations of the presence of the spirit being beyond simply preaching or sacraments or faith in these emotional reactions. And so increasingly, American evangelicals began to look for the evidence of emotional, intense emotional response as an evidence of revival. So they identified the phenomena at Cane Ridge or Bourbon County, Kentucky, with what happened in the book of Acts. And that became a sort of foundational assumption for much of American religion in the 19th century, which shapes the assumptions of the way American evangelicals looked at the faith, looked at Scripture in the 20th century. We are, in many ways, the product of all of those assumptions. Right. And of course, there were earlier backgrounds to that as well. All the way back into the 17th century, there began to develop in Reformed Protestant circles a worry about formalism, a worry that people were going through the motion, going through the motion, saying the right doctrine, attending church, doing Christian duties. But was their heart really engaged? That's a fair question. But some of the answers to that question, some of the solutions to the problem of formalism in the 18th and on in the 19th century become increasingly problematic, in my judgment. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated 
that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. And so people come increasingly more and more to look for evidence of personal immediate, that is without the church, a subjective experience of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, such that anyone who can't give testimony to that kind of experience comes to be suspect as someone who isn't really born again. Right. There's a whole wing of evangelicalism that develops, that thinks that every individual ought to be able to give testimony to an experience of conversion to show that they have really passed from unbelief to belief, from a formal commitment to a a genuine vital commitment. It happens almost again in a similar way, not identical, at the turn of the 20th century in Mm -hmm. 1906 or so in Topeka and then in Los Angeles. So tell us about that. Well, that's the emergence of Pentecostalism. And I think the Pentecostals themselves have often wanted to talk about their own history as something unique and surprising and unexpected. And that's really not true. Pentecostalism, in a sense, is a fairly understandable continuation of developments taking place in the 19th century, focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, but rather separated from the ministry of the church and from the preaching of the gospel in particular. Which brings me back to my favorite question in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 65, which I think is such an important question relative to how the Reformers originally understood these issues. And that question is, where does true faith come from? And the answer is a marvel of brief, balanced, careful, biblical reflection. And the answer is, where does true faith come from? True faith is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So there's this immediate recognition. We can't come to faith on our own. It takes a sovereign work of grace ministered by the person of the Holy Spirit to us. So true faith is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. So here's the church, the centrality of the ministry of the church in this whole process. And the answer goes on to say, and confirmed unto us through the Holy Sacraments. So sacraments are not originating, but are confirming. And it's the preaching of the Word that is central to anyone coming to faith. But that preaching of the Word bears effect only by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful answer that would have saved the church from any number of excesses and problems. Do you believe that, Scott Clark? <laughs> With all my heart. Breathlessly. Ex animo. Now, the, and the Westminster Standards say essentially the same thing when they use the phrase, the due use of ordinary means. So it's not the case that in Reformed theology, piety, and practice, we have to set the Holy Spirit against the means, so that we have to choose between them, either the Spirit or the means. And it's also not the case that we have to so idolize the means as to make them effective without, as it were, the operation of the Holy Spirit. Right. Exactly right. This is so important to the life of the church. There's such a tendency that if the life of the church isn't vital and growing and going well to say, well, we mustn't be doing things right. Now, 
we may not be doing things right. I'm not saying we shouldn't seriously examine ourselves and be prepared to say we've been wrong, we need to make changes. But it may also be that the sovereign work of the Spirit has other plans for us than the plans we'd like for ourselves. And we have to be careful not to fall into a kind of practical Arminianism that says if we just have the right programs, everything will go swimmingly. Which actually was a major movement in the middle and latter part of the 19th century. Right, especially affiliated with the work of Charles Grandison Finney. Who laid out a series of lectures on revival and said, here is sort of wonderful American approach to religion. Here's a machine, and if you build this machine correctly, and you operate this machine correctly, here are the results you're going to get. Right. I mean, he said he had discovered the scientific principles that always worked for the church. If you just do things correctly, you will have the results you want. And of course, the implication is if you don't have the results, it's because you haven't done things correctly. Which is very attractive to the American mind. Right. I mean, we're a pragmatic people. We're a a methodical people. And uh, we tend to import business principles wherever we go. And by and large, it tends to be true. If you do things right in business, you're likely to succeed. And so we think that must be true in the church as well. But it isn't because we are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life. Right. The machine, whatever that is, the mechanism, isn't the Lord and giver of life. You can do everything. You can sing the right number of songs with the right modulation and key changes and all of that with the right tempo and do everything that people say that you should do. And still, you haven't captured the person or the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And what I think, unfortunately, is not thought carefully enough about is if you follow Finneyite principles— You probably can gather a large congregation. The question is, have you actually converted people to Christ? I'm haunted by the reaction to Finneyite theology in the 19th century by the great Southern Presbyterian theologian Robert Dabney, who said, millions of souls are in hell for failing to distinguish animal feelings from true religious feeling. And I think the American church has to really pause and reflect on that. If you have stained glass windows and a great organ, if you have a drum set and a lot of emotion, you can have all kinds of feelings that people are going to think are religious feelings. And they may be. I'm not saying absolutely there aren't genuine religious feelings in those contexts, but it's very dangerous to think that just because you have strong feelings in those contexts, those feelings are genuine religious feelings. That's not necessarily evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. What is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit? I would say the key evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is that people are drawn to Christ and his word, are drawn to the Christ of the word. I mean, we live in an age where there are seemingly endless numbers of descriptions of Christ or claims for the teachings of Christ and the work of Christ. And so the really key thing, I think, for evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he draws us to the Word of Christ, to the Scriptures. And for people who are not interested in the Scriptures, I think there's a very serious doubt that must be raised as to whether the Holy Spirit has really worked in their hearts. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I don't see any rolling on the floor in Paul's list. I didn't see the Word of God there either. I mean, you you can't— Okay, but maybe there's no— Yeah, right. I'm just saying not everything is in every text. Sure. But 
I think in the whole New Testament, you don't see a whole lot of rolling on the floor. You do see John brought to his knees by the manifestation of Christ and of angels in the book of the Revelation. Again, I wouldn't say rolling on the floor proves that the Spirit is not present, but I think we have to say absolutely adamantly that rolling on the floor does not prove the Spirit is present, and that's a danger among some Pentecostals, I think. And fruit is evidence of the nature of the tree. Right. And the fruit for which the Apostle Paul is looking is joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other things that may transpire in the life of the Christian. It's not to say that one may not have a sense of the leading of the Spirit or prompting or that the Spirit doesn't work as we're reading and hearing the Scriptures to help us understand things more clearly and see ourselves and our lives and our relationship to the Word and the Church and all of those things more clearly, yeah. more powerfully. So we're not trying, just in case the listener is worried that we're trying to put the Spirit in a box. Not at all. That's not true. But, you know, I think one of the real problems in the Church today is the constant talk about how the Spirit is leading us. If you appeal to the Spirit to be led away from the Word— you are not being led by the Holy Spirit. You may be being led by some spirit, but not by the Holy Spirit. And in that list, we think about peace. What do we think of peace as a fruit of the Spirit? Well, it could be a lot of things, but one of the things it must surely be is that you are at peace with the Word of God, that you are at peace with other Christians who hold to the Word of God. And I think that's not always the way peace is understood in our context. Sometimes peace is made to be toleration of all sorts of anti-biblical beliefs and practices, and I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing at all. Or a purely subjective experience, perhaps a state of bliss or something. Right. And another element of the presence of the Holy Spirit is perseverance. Where the Holy Spirit is really present, people will persevere in the faith. That's not to say there won't be ups and downs and struggles, but it means that the Spirit brings to fruition the work that he truly begins. So the Holy Spirit plays a major role in the ecumenical early Catholic, lowercase c, universal creeds held by all Christians in all times and in all places. The Apostles' Creed, which developed gradually over centuries, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Well done. Got that out without stumbling. Uh, the definition of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed, which is a rather later document summarizing much of what had gone on before. The Holy Spirit plays a major role in all of those documents. And that really did shape the Reformation and later Reformed reflection on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Therefore, I think B.B. Uh, Warfield was right when he said that John Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And by that, he meant Calvin developed what was already there in a kind of abbreviated form in the life of the Church into a fullness of appreciation. And I think particularly in this day where a lot of Christians have been so interested in what we might call the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. What Calvin highlighted was the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, and by that he meant the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating hearts, bringing the gift of faith, leading in the process of sanctification. Those things that are not dramatic, those things that are not— Or necessarily dramatic. Not necessarily dramatic, not necessarily hyper-emotional. They don't necessarily involve a sawdust trail. Right. But are the absolutely crucial works for people actually coming to know Christ and experience His salvation. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.